Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. And as you're getting there, if you haven't been with us in a few weeks, we've been going through this portion of Scripture called the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes are at the beginning of Jesus' famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And so far, we've talked about those first three Beatitudes, and this morning, we're going to talk about the fourth. So this morning, we're going to read uh, Matthew 5, 1 through 6. We're going to focus on verse 6, but to get context, we'll read this entire passage. So Matthew 5, starting in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Thus ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Jesus' words this morning promise genuine and lasting satisfaction. So to help us break that down, we're going to look at this verse three different ways. We're going to talk about the obsession, and then the object, and then finally the outcome. So the obsession, the object, and then the outcome. So let's start with the obsession. Blessed are those who hunger, Jesus says. That kind of goes contrary to our daily experience, doesn't it? I mean, just think about it. Our culture has kind of invented this word hangry for a reason. I mean, something kind of wells up in us if we go an hour or two past our accustomed mealtimes, isn't it? That anger just kind of wells up. And if you, I mean, this is very true because, you know, Daryl was talking about Snickers bars. So six out of the last eight Snickers Super Bowl commercials have kind of been based on this premise, is that you are not you when you're hungry. But Jesus, in this text, is telling us something different. He is saying, you are you when you're hungry. So what type of hunger is he talking about? Leon Morris says in his commentary on Matthew, Jesus is speaking of an intense longing that may be likened to both hunger and thirst. So we see here that the hunger and thirst is metaphorical. That's a softball. We get it, right? But there's even more context here that we need to gain, is that the original hearers of Jesus' words would have been thinking something else as well. R.C. Sproul says it this way, this message was given to people who, for the most part, lived in a desert, who knew what it meant to have such a parched palate that their thirst was so consuming that just one cup of cold water would dramatically improve their condition. These people hearing this message have been meditating upon Psalm 42, the beginning of Psalm 42, probably a lot of their life where it says, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. See, there's two characteristics of truly hungry people I want to talk about. Number one, they're single-minded. They are single-minded. Have you ever experienced this? When you haven't eaten that much in a particular day, and you don't have the groceries you need at home to put a dinner together, 
And you, you go home and, and you're like, right, we're just going to go get something to eat. And so you're in the car and then somebody in the car says, you know what? On the way to dinner, there's a store right on the way. Can you just drop me off so I can go in there and look at a couple things? Now you and I both know what we're thinking in that moment, right? Ain't nobody got time for that. I've got to eat because hungry people are single-minded. You see what I'm saying? Number two, they're driven. They will overcome any obstacle. And this reminds me of Hugh Glass. Some of you may know who Hugh Glass is. There's been a novel and a movie about him titled The Revenant. Um, Hugh Glass was a famous pioneer in the 1820s. He is up in the wilderness in the West. I mean, it's a it's, it's, it's not even really a, a, a civilized place, right? It's way out in the remote wilderness. And long story short, he gets attacked by a bear, cuts to the throat, cuts to the back, mangled leg, and the, and the group that he's with basically leaves him to die. But he doesn't. And he ends up crawling, eventually going 200 miles to his destination. But along the way, he's crawling, and he comes to this opening And he can't even remember the last time that he ate. And in this opening, he's not alone. There's a rattlesnake there. And the rattlesnake just happens to be digesting its prey. And so Hugh Glass thinks about it. I need to eat this snake. And so he grabs a walnut-sized rock and he throws it at the rattlesnake just to see what happens. And the rattlesnake remains motionless. So he takes a fist-sized rock and he crawls over to the rattlesnake and just as he's going to crush it, the rattlesnake, you know, bolts just a little bit, but not enough and Hugh Glass kills the rattlesnake and then he looks at it and he goes, now what? And he's got this pack full of just random things, like everything you need except for the things you need to survive and so he dumps this out and there's this dull razor Well, that's his best chance here. So he pulls out this dull razor. He starts skinning the rattlesnake. He gets to raw meat and hunger just overtakes him. And he just bites this big piece of really tough snake meat and just swallows it and about chokes him to death. And then he realizes what he's going to have to do. He's going to have to take that dull razor and for the remaining daylight hours, he's going to have to cut that tough meat into small little sections and then put it between two rocks and crush it to tenderize it so he can swallow it. You get what I'm saying? Hungry people are, they're driven. They'll overcome any obstacle. But what drives you? What do you find your mind fixated on? What does your soul passionately long for? What does your soul thirst for? As many of you know, Madonna's made headlines again the past couple of weeks. Listen to what her soul thirsted for in the early 90s. She wrote, I have an iron will, and all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I push past one spell of it, and discover myself as a special human being. And then I get to another stage, and I think I'm mediocre and uninteresting. Again and again, this happens. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre, and that always is pushing me, pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. 
My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. So what are you hungering and thirsting after that you're finding out leaves you empty? Because here's the unique thing about the human heart within a fallen world is that we can take great things, great things like relationships, great things like career advancement, great things and enjoyable things like hobbies, even our own children, and we can twist and turn and manipulate them into ultimate things, ultimate things that we seek for security, happiness, and peace. But many of us, many of us realize is that the things that we seek to free us end up enslaving us. The things that we so desperately want to make us happy in the end can leave us in sorrow and even in despair. So we realize that a lot of times we end up less satisfied than when we began our quest for satisfaction. And so here is where Jesus starts to part the fog of our idolatry by reminding us that our hungry and thirsty souls are only satisfied when they are aimed in a particular direction. This leads us to our second point, the object. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for what? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for what? Righteousness. For they shall be satisfied. You never know when it's rhetorical, and I know. Forgive me, I needed the break to get some water. So here's the thing. If everything else in this existence that we can hunger and thirst for will leave us empty, except for this one thing. Don't you think we should really understand what that is? I mean, so I don't know if you guys rely on your GPS like I do, but sometimes we can put a lot of faith in it, right? Sometimes we get used to plugging in the address and we end up where we're supposed to go. We don't even know how we get there. I mean, sometimes it happens like this. We put in the correct street numbers, we put in the correct street name. And then suddenly we get in the car and we get a phone call or you know, a string of our favorite jams come on and we just mindlessly listen to the GPS, get us to where we're going. And then we're crossing the state line into South Carolina when we're supposed to be going to Lake Norman. Have you ever experienced something like that? It's incredibly disappointing to find out that you don't get where you're trying to get. And so here's the thing is that I can't guarantee if you just type in the word righteousness into your spiritual GPS that you will get to a place where God will satisfy you. You see what I'm saying? Because our language uses righteousness in a certain way, and then the Bible has many nuanced ways of talking about righteousness. So I want us to be clear not only of what the broad theme of righteousness is, but I want us to see what is Jesus saying here in this text. Because if it's that important of a thing, it could be the most important thing in your Christian life, not because of what I'm saying, but because of what Jesus is proclaiming here, that there is a promise of complete satisfaction. So 
What I want us to do real quick, now this is the point where sometimes we kind of daze out and we think we can kind of come back in and put it all together and we'll figure it out. You gotta hang in. We're gonna do some digging here. We're gonna drill in, we're gonna get dirty, but I promise we're gonna come back up. So hang in there with me just a little bit. We're gonna look at three types of righteousness that we can't put in the GPS and then we'll look at the right one, okay? So first, self-righteousness. That's not the one. That's an easy one, right? We know that. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after self-righteousness, for they shall be filled. No. Why am I talking about it? Because when a lot of us hear the word righteousness, it's almost beaten to our brain that righteousness just equals self-righteousness. Because maybe we remember people in our lives who were self-righteous. You know the people we're talking about. They base their identity and their self-worth on their moral conduct. And anybody else that doesn't come up to their standard, they look down on and disdain because they feel superior to them. So Jesus is saying not self-righteousness. He's talking about a different type of self-righteousness. And some of you may be waiting patiently for me to go, oh, it's the imputed righteousness of Christ. Because that is an incredible thing. Not all of us understand what imputed righteousness of Christ is, so let's talk about it. The Bible talks about it in many different places, but my favorite is 2 Corinthians 5.21. For he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that way we could become the righteousness of God. Martin Luther called this the great exchange, that our sinful record and Jesus' perfect moral record, they're exchanged, that you get the righteousness of Christ, Christ takes on your sinfulness, and it's a marvelous and needed thing. But is that what Jesus is talking about here? It could be included maybe, but I think his nuance is a little bit different here. Some of your Bibles, when you read hunger and thirst after, it's filled in with the word justice as opposed to righteousness. That's because sometimes this has been interpreted that what Jesus is telling his disciples is to hunger and thirst after social righteousness. That we would hunger and thirst to seek the freedom of those who are being oppressed by tyranny. Now that's included in the Christian life. But if you type in social righteousness into your spiritual GPS to get to the place where God is going to satisfy you, I'm not sure if you're going to get to a place where God will satisfy you. So what is it? We have to remember the context. The word righteousness shows up in the Sermon on the Mount five times. It shows up five times in this Sermon on the Mount. And every single time, it means the right conduct in the eyes of God. Right conduct in the eyes of God. I'm, I'm gonna flesh it out a little bit, but just see here, here's a couple examples. Matthew 5, 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. In Matthew 6, 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So what is the righteousness? What are you typing in? You're typing in doing right in God's eyes. But then, yeah, okay. 
Well, thankfully, Jesus summarized what that looks like in Matthew 22. Do you remember what he said? He essentially says, love God with all of your being and your neighbor as yourself. So hopefully that can help us wrap our mind around here so that way when we type this in the spiritual GPS, that we end up at a location where we can be fully satisfied by God. Does that make sense? So blessed are those who passionately long to love God with all of their being and their neighbors as themselves, for they shall be satisfied. So, so far we've looked at the obsession and we've worked hard to understand the object. But now let's look at the outcome. First, Jesus said these people who hunger and thirst after righteousness, they're blessed. What does blessed mean? Now, I don't agree with everything the New Testament scholar N.T. Wright teaches, especially on justification. But on this passage, it's been very helpful for me to think about what blessed means. Because blessed doesn't just mean happy, right? I mean, happiness is an emotion that we feel based on a particular circumstance, a positive circumstance. But then something negative comes along the way, and it, happiness dissipates, doesn't it? Well, blessedness is a posture of the heart. It's a posture of the heart that is not, it doesn't fluctuate based on circumstance. Let me explain. I'm in construction sales. So if I am single-minded and driven solely on customer approval, what is that going to look like when something goes wrong? On those rare occasions in construction when things go wrong, how is that, what's going to happen there for me? Well, if I'm basing my identity on whether my customer is going to approve me or not, when something goes wrong, what's going to go on in my heart is a type of despairing anxiety. Some of you guys that are in sales, you, you, you felt that before. And then there's a problem, and we know we need to help find a solution, but then our logic process is going to be clouded by panic. But it looks much differently if you're blessed. Because your single-mindedness and you're driven by that thing of hungering and thirsting after loving God with all of your being and your neighbor as yourself. And so when something like this happens, you're actually postured in such a way to do what is right. Because when a problem happens, you don't just say, ah, oh, it'll be all right, it's in God's hands. No, because that doesn't fit love God with all your being and your neighbor as yourself. When a problem happens, you actually will come to try to find a solution with excellence and with promptness and with wisdom. Because you're prayerfully doing it, trying to love God with all of your being and your neighbors yourself, and you're trying to really meet your customers' needs as opposed to your personal idol needs. Do you see what I'm saying? For they shall be satisfied. That's another outcome. It's a paradox, isn't it? We are to hunger while being satisfied. Some interpretations see the Beatitudes as to-dos, 
to earn the kingdom of God. But we, we've dismantled that. We know that's not the case. And then some of the interpretations get closer to what I think the meaning is, and it's the life we ought to live since God has been gracious to us. But what if there's more here? What if Jesus is wanting us to think more about it? Because there's an already but not yet aspect to this passage. What do I mean by that? Just for a moment, envision a world where the sole drive of every human heart was to love God with all of their being and love their neighbor as themselves. What kind of world would this be? What kind of person would you be? What would your relationships look like? What kind of culture would this create? Think about it. Even if you have to close your eyes, just think about it. Can you imagine never seeing another social media post where the poster is bearing false witness about the opposing political party? Can you imagine a world with no more sex trafficking or racism or worrying if your spouse is going to remain faithful while they're out of town on business? Can you imagine a world where you will no longer find yourself crying in the shower until there is no longer any hot water left because you missed your lost loved one so bad? Some of you want me to stop. Just stop it, Daniel. That's too good to be true. That's not reality. But it will be. This is the new heavens and the new earth that Jesus, I mean, that the scriptures talk about in Revelation 21. This is the new heavens and the new earth that we will resurrect to. But it's not just out there and then. But Jesus is saying, we can taste it here and now. What would it look like for your marriage to taste heaven where the two of you, you're single-minded and you're driven to love God with all of your being and your neighbor as yourself. And then the list goes on and on. What would it look like here and now? Because Jesus is inviting us to taste that, that future reality it is bursting forth already into this existence because Jesus has rose from the grave and he's ascended to the Father. Yes, it's not yet fully fulfilled, but we can taste it here and now. Yet, for some of us, we've realized that what we have been functionally basing our life on has crumbled beneath our feet and we have fallen. Disillusionment and disappointment rush in when we realize the created thing we have set our deepest hopes and longings on has failed us. And so one, one counselor wrote this. He said, when you feel, finally realize this, there are basically four options on how to respond. You can blame the things that are disappointing you and try to move on to better ones. But that's the way of continued idolatry and spiritual addiction. Number two, the second thing you can do is blame yourself and beat yourself up and say, I have somehow been a failure. I see everybody else as happy. I don't know why I'm not happy. There's something wrong with me. But look, that's the way of self-loathing and shame. 
Third, you can shoot the world and God the bird and move on. But what that's going to do is make you hard, cynical, and empty. So how should we respond? The counselor says this. As C.S. Lewis says at the end of his great chapter on hope, we need to reorient the entire focus of our life toward God. Yesterday afternoon, we were playing in our living room, and my, my two boys, Marshall, my oldest boy, he still got on his pajamas, which is, I just think is the cutest thing in the world. He's got on his pajamas, you know, he's got his socks on, he's got a pair of gloves on, we're inside the house. He's got on a belt, he's got a sword, you know, tucked into his belt. I mean, he looks like Peter on the Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe. Um, it, it just, he just looks just like him. You know, over the past couple months, we've been working through the Chronicles of Narnia. But at any rate, he takes a, a bench that's at our dinner table and he pushes it into the living room and then he proceeds to climb up on top of that bench and he's got his chest poked out. You know, he looks just like a, a nine-year, uh, a Narnian knight ever would, and he, he says these words. He says, and I, I want to quote them because they're pretty sweet. They say, he says, uh, all the people, he has chest poked out. All the people, you know, he's proclaiming. All the people, you need to remember the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. You need to remember the chronicles of Narnia. Peter was fighting the white witch, but Aslan rose from the dead and fought the witch. All the days remember. I'm like, what? That just came out of a four-year-old? <laughs> but then it hit me like a ton of bricks. That's the only cure for our hearts. Our hearts that are so mangled in all of these idols all these things that we're hungering and thirsting for, but they leave us unsatisfied and empty because it's not enough to be self-aware. It's not enough just to identify the idol, the counterfeit God. It's not even enough to root it out because guess what? Our hearts were created to hunger and thirst and we have to feed our souls. And so I would say, as Marshall said, all the people, we need to remember the gospel. We have tried to take matters into our own hands, but Jesus has resurrected from the dead, and the implications of this can be ours here and now. Don't you hear Christ calling you like he did in John chapter 6, verse 35? I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. Can you imagine not having that nagging sensation anymore? If you're convicted this morning because you've realized that you've been placing your hopes and dreams on counterfeit gods that leave you disappointed, if you're convicted, come to Christ this morning. But don't just come repenting because I'm afraid that that's going to leave you feeling some despair. And don't just come to Christ this morning rejoicing because that just might be a fleeting sense of inspiration. Come this morning to Christ repenting and rejoicing. Because that is the beginning of the worship our hearts needs 
to push the idol out. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to meditate on the truth that blessed are those who passionately long to love you with all our being and our neighbor as ourself, for we shall be satisfied. Lord, I pray that as our hearts can be tender and at the same time they can be cold, that your spirit would do soul surgery in this room. Lord, that you would mend us and that you would heal us and that you would reorient us to the way that we were created to be. That we would be seeking in our direction towards you and you alone. God, we thank you that the promise is blessedness and satisfaction. Help us to find that in you alone. Amen.